In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. A number of years ago, I took part in a ministry training cohort led by a guy named Dan Spader. Dan's entire approach came from spending countless hours studying the Gospels to try and discover a way of doing ministry like Jesus did. So he was steeped in the Gospel texts, as well as the geography of the Holy Land, which he had visited and walked around at least once a year for, I want to say, decades. Anytime you'd read a story, he'd say, yeah, this is what the topography looks like there, or when you walk this path, you'll find this mountain over here or this over there. The curriculum, like the Gospels, was all about Jesus, but the whole program started with John the Baptist. Typically, we read about John through the interpretive lens of the rest of the Gospels, and so we know him as the forerunner who prepared the way for Jesus, which is why he dominates our Gospel readings during Advent. But what became real to me for the first time in that ministry cohort was what a big deal John the Baptist was to his contemporaries, and the ways that while we strive to take up our crosses, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus, there are ways in which it is John's ministry that we should be emulating. People flocked to Jesus when he was in town, but people traveled out into the wilderness to see John. John's ministry was impactful enough that people thought that he was the Messiah, the anointed one. And so while we know that each of the Gospels is about Jesus, at the start of each Gospel, Jesus began to minister in a context where John the Baptist was already the focus of Israel's attention. This is why in our Gospel reading today, John's disciples assume that he'll be jealous of Jesus. Suddenly there's this new act in town, upstaging him, baptizing people. It's quite the threat to the prophet known as John the Baptizer. Jesus is moving in on his brand. So John's disciples say, Rabbi, the one who was with you across the Jordan to whom you testified, here he is baptizing and people are going to him. From their perspective, they see this Galilean who came out to receive a baptism from John now moving in on John's market share in the repent and be baptized business. But John understands his part in the story. As the forerunner, John is like the best man in the wedding feast and he tells them, that the friend of the bridegroom rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. The best man is meant to highlight the groom. A best man who forgets that ends up giving a toast all about himself, and everyone feels uncomfortable. But John understood what was going on. So as Jesus' renown eclipsed his own, John was joyous. He had done his job. He had prepared the way. So this morning, I'm going to focus on what he says at the end of our reading. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, we all intellectually consent to this idea that our job is to point to God and not ourselves. But what a challenge it is when our primary modes of social interaction are online platforms where we have to invent and reinvent ourselves as brands, and brands try and invent themselves as people. Every day is a new public statement made to give everyone a, par a particular picture of how intelligent or thoughtful or earnest we are. But then we take a day to post the unfiltered, unsanitized, but still very carefully curated real life that we live in so we can posture ourselves to show that we too are a hashtag humble person. So before I talk any more about why John's message of increase and decrease is good news, I want to talk about how we do it. The reading from 1 Thessalonians comes at the end of Paul's letter to that church. Now, he's already written extensively about the coming of Christ, the second advent, to encourage his readers to be watchful and ready. He's pointed their eyes to what is to come. But in the meantime, he gives this list of exhortations, things to do. I think it's important and helpful to read Paul's lists like this one, not as a new law, do this or else, 
but as encouragements to live into a new reality, the life they've been given through grace, the life they're able to live because they know Jesus is returning. And I'm a firm believer in the fact that our habits shape us, maybe even form our desires ahead of time. Perhaps even a habit like praying three times a day for our church in general and for each other in particular. This list from Paul is no different. N.T. Wright compares habits like these to learning a language. Typically, you start by learning the grammar and vocabulary, and then when you speak, you end up slowing down to try and remember all the rules, conjugating verbs in your head on the fly. But in time, the goal is for it to come naturally. And that kind of fluency just takes time. I experienced it a little bit as a child when I attended a German immersion school through fifth grade. Mornings were conducted entirely in German. And so by about third grade, whenever you accidentally spoke in English, one of your friends could tattle on you, exclaiming, Deutsch bitte, or German please. And I think after three Deutsch bittes, you had to stay inside for recess. It may have felt a little draconian and created a strange dynamic between friends, but immersion programs are so successful at teaching second languages because day in and day out, we spent the whole morning doing everything in German, including computer and sport. And over time, it really became a second language to you. It's the same thing with the habits that Paul lists. They immerse us in a new kind of language, a different way of living. living. Paul lists habits that form us into people who love each other well, seeking peace with each other, seeking to do the good to one another, these are important, and oftentimes we find that we only love people after we've actually put in the effort to love them. We do the loving things and then find that our hearts are warmed afterwards. But I want to look at the habits he lists that form us in our direction towards God and paying attention towards God. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Do not quench the spirit. These habits create an openness for God to do God's work in our lives. Praying forms us into people who assume we have something we need to receive, either materially, spiritually, in terms of direction. Rejoicing and thanking God reminds us of God's goodness, that what we have received from him has been from him and from his goodness. This is the language and habits of I must decrease, he must increase. It teaches our hearts to be properly directed. Now, there are trade-offs. In order to decrease so that Jesus might increase, we might have to lose some of our control, control over our lives, perceived control over outcomes, to be ready to go in a direction we didn't plan. God frequently changes the direction of his people. God frequently intervenes and says, you thought you knew what you were doing, but I have something else in mind. John learned this the hard way. He probably didn't expect that he would be imprisoned or that his story on this earth ends with his head on a platter. But losing control doesn't mean the same as inaction. Decreasing so that God might increase doesn't mean passivity. We have to reject the false dichotomy that either God does everything or we do everything. Tish Harrison Warren writes about human agency this way. She says, the Christian understanding of agency is that all good work is a participation in the very life of God. It is our act of cooperation with the sustainer of the universe. It flows from prayer and back into prayer. If Jesus is only our co-pilot, it means we still get to chart the course. But we have to step aside, let him drive, and dutifully attend to our role as ones who point to him and receive from him. We need to become, who, become ones who respond to God's initiative, not ones who believe that we possess the initiative ourselves. God is always in the process of revealing himself to us. 
It's our job to take up habits that form us into listeners so that we might receive from him and see what it is he's revealing. Now, the reason we can confidently give up control like this is because of what God has in store for us. It's so much better than what we might do ourselves. So I want to turn to Isaiah to get a picture of what it is we are hoping for. Isaiah 65 is written as a response to complaints of divine inaction. The people had not seen God's hand at work and issue a challenge. Now, the first half of the chapter, which we didn't read, is God's response in judgment. He had reached out to them, and it was they who were unresponsive to his calls. But then we get these verses about the new heavens and the new earth. What God promises here isn't just a generic one-size-fits-all picture of goodness. These are promises that give hope to those people in particular, hope for fruitfulness amidst feelings of futility, for a people who had experienced the indiscriminate deaths that came from being conquered and sent into captivity. God promises that no more will infants die after a few days, and no more will there be one who dies young. They won't be planting vineyards and not enjoying the fruit of their labors. They won't build and have someone else inhabit. They won't plant and have someone else eat. And you may remember a few weeks ago when I preached on a different passage in Isaiah, this is a reversal of a curse that was threatened in Deuteronomy, exacted in the exile, but then removed here. It's a promise to once again be co-laborers with God. Again, from Tish Harrison Warren, she says, quote, in the eschatological reality we watch for, work itself will be made new. Isaiah 65 speaks of God creating a new heaven and a new earth where labor will no longer be marked by toil. It's not that we will no longer work. We won't spend eternity sitting around eating Cheetos and binging Netflix. Instead, God's people shall enjoy the work of their hands. None of us will labor in vain. And she quotes Leslie Newbingen, who writes that not only will our bodies be raised, but our work as well. All the faithful labor of God's servants, which time seems to have buried in the dust of failure, will be raised up will be found to be there, transfigured in the new kingdom. Their labor was not lost. It has found its place in the completed kingdom. This is the good news that Isaiah is pointing to. And, to. and the claim that God doesn't answer prayers, Israel's complaint, you weren't listening to us, God promises that before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. God offers comfort broadly, but not generically. He promises to comfort people exactly where they are hurting. In fact, Jesus promised to his disciples the comforter, the Holy Spirit, who would come alongside each of us, who would be our advocate, who would empower us and bestow us gifts individually. It's why Paul talks about the diversity of gifts. God's comfort that he, that he offers for the future is for our particular needs now. And so as we experience these hurts, as we experience these pains, the promise in Isaiah 65 isn't, well, we'll get something that comforts someone else. It's that God will comfort the needs and the concerns and the hurts that we have even right now. And he promises even more than that. Or as one of our collects puts it, he is more ready to hear than we to pray and to give more than either we desire or deserve. God's comfort isn't just a painkiller for our hurts, but a redirection of our lives towards his kingdom. More than restoration it's transformation into something better. Here at the end of Isaiah, God promises to bring his peace not just to Israel, but to the whole world itself. 
As they are wounded and ground down, Israel probably can't see beyond their own suffering, but God's purposes are always bigger than just the needs of his chosen people. Ever since God made his covenant with Abraham, he has always intended his people not just to be blessed, but to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. And the fulfillment of that promise comes through Jesus, the true and faithful Israelite. He must increase, and we must decrease. Our eyes, our hearts, and our lives have to always be directed at the one who is coming, the one who actually offers healing to us, and by his grace will use us in his healing of the nations. In difficult seasons, we have to redirect our attention away from ourselves and towards the one who promises better things than we could ask or imagine. This is the beginning of our faithfulness when we go through trials, to be obedient in letting go of our own preconceived notion of how God needs to act and to wait expectantly for him to do what only he can do. And as always, the good news is that it isn't contingent on us. After Paul gives his list of habits, as if he anticipates some despair on their part for how hard it is to live all that out, Paul offers this as his benediction. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. He will do this. Like we heard from Laura Howard last week, the Lord is coming no matter how straight we are able to make the path. In the end, God will heal our hurting souls. Eschatologically, things are looking pretty good. But we must be willing to turn away our attention from ourselves in the meantime, to allow our own gifts and talents to be means to the end of God's glory, not ends in and of themselves. John, of all people, must have been tempted to put his own ego ahead of faithfulness. Pride can show up when you're delusional and overestimate your skills, but pride most often shows up when you have something to be proud of. The siren song of self-importance and pride is always playing in the background of our lives. And the antidote is not just to try and turn down its volume or perhaps turn down our own, but to follow the example of John and throw our ego into the wind. We must resist the desire to form an identity around our lives and our gifts, around how special we are. It's good that we've forgotten the popularity of John the Baptist's ministry because it means he was faithful. It means he did what he was supposed to do. If we minister to others and they remember us but aren't thanking God, something's gone amiss. If I'm honest, I have many times looked at my own years in ministry and rather than thanking God for how he had blessed us or how I was able to cooperate in his work, I told myself and others how much better I was at blessing God. Look at my youth ministry. Look at how great this is. All these schlubs do their awful diet versions of youth ministry. This is the real stuff. Thankfully, God overcomes my pride. Thankfully, God works despite that. And even though he knew that I would have an ego because of it, God did great things through that work. That's what we look back and we thank God for. May we take John's words seriously. We must decrease. Jesus must increase. May we learn not to try and be special, to carve out our own personal brand or our church's brand in the landscape of Wheaton Christianity. Instead of being special, may we strive to be faithful, to take what God has given us, and to use it to direct each other and the world around us to the king who is coming. Because all we are called to do is stand to the side and direct attention to the bridegroom. And looking to what God plans to do for us in the whole world, the transformation of all things, everything as it should be, the coming of the bridegroom is good news indeed.
Amen.